0: mind, which was reflective of a major shift of relationship, and I remember it coming to my mind, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And it was amazing, because in that moment of acceptance, that was the first moment of genuine acceptance. Because in all those previous moments, fear, 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 it was really saying, go away, go away, go away. And of course, it was just locking it in. When I could totally get there for it, that this is here for the rest of my life, it's so cold. It's amazing what had been so locked <coughs> in that moment, the whole thing washed through. And it's not to say that fear never came again, but it never came in quite that same stuck way, because I had learned through practice that it's okay. And that's where one of my favorite Vipassana Mantra comes from. It's okay. When you're with some difficult situation, it's okay. It's that's sort of the magic mantra. This points to an essential lesson in meditation, understanding. And this this is really key. This is going to be on the final exam. (laughs) That it's not at all important what it is that's happening. What's important is how we're relating to it. So we're not practicing in order to have certain experiences. We're practicing a way of relating to all experience, free of aversion and free of clinging, and attachment. just openness. It's okay, it's painful, fine, it's pleasant, fine. We're changing our way of relating rather than trying to change our experience. This is the essence of the training. So our practice is to let things in, not keep them out. Whatever it is, we let things in the environment in. Disturbing noises, let it in. Difficult sensations in the body, let it in. Difficult emotions, difficult people, let them in. It's being with things simply as they are. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion. Because when we can be with things as they are, when we can feel, taste, be connected to the suffering that arises in a moment in ourselves, in other people, that's when compassion arises. Mindfulness allows us to be present. Years ago, I was on a whitewater rafting trip up on the Snake River, or the Salmon, I know, in Idaho. And it was the first time I was on a whitewater rafting trip. And we were in, you know, a bunch of us were in this raft, and the guides had a long just a little rubber kayak, you know, an inflatable kayak, so, sort of like a big bathtub toy, you know, just to kind of play around. So we were going down the river and I thought,
1: it looks like fun.
0: You know, so I got into this inflatable kayak, and paddling away, and pretty soon the guide starts shouting to me, watch out, there's a hole in the river. I had no idea what he was talking about.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> to me, there were holes in ground, in the ground. hole in river. I had no association with that concept whatsoever until a moment later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, for those of you who don't know, you know when the water of the river goes over a rock in a certain way, it creates like a little vortex, a yeah. whirlpool, and I was heading right towards it, and in fact. The whole kayak went plunging into this hole in the river. I was pulled down, I was sucked down. I was wearing a life vest, and you know, the life vest pushed me back up, but it was so strong it pulled me down again. So you can imagine, it was, it was an intense moment. But again, then the life jacket <coughs> pushed me up to the surface, and I flew out of the hole.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that experience. <coughs> and seeing the value of the life best
1: <laughs>
0: reminded me of the power of mindfulness. Because as we get pulled into the vortex of our trips, of all the kind of suffering and the place we get stuck and the difficult emotions and the pain in the body and all of it, difficult situations in our life, as we're pulled down, into the suffering of it all, if we can be mindful rather than lost and deluded, it brings us up to the surface. We can be okay with it. We can be accepting of it, knowing that it's all part of the changing river. It really frees us. And so the right effort here is not an effort of striving. It's not an efforting. It's really courage. It's really the quality of courage to be present. You know, as you probably know, the word for courage really comes from the word for heart, core. And courage really means strength of heart. And that's what our practice does. We're strengthening our hearts to be with the truth of what's in front of us, to be with the truth of our experience. As we learn, as we practice opening up to the pain and suffering in our own lives, that gives us the strength and the courage and the insight to be willing to open to the pain and the suffering in other people's lives. And it happens on different levels. It happens first on the level of a genuine kind of empathy. You know, where we slow down enough in the midst of our own rushing that we actually feel what another person is going through. When we ask somebody, how are you, do we care? Or maybe we could take a moment to care. Maybe a moment to stop and and actually get there for the other person. Or even more, uh, connecting. Now how often are we reacting to people's behavior and personalities and? and not taking the time to really feel what's underneath it. Because so often people are acting out difficult behavior out of the place of their own suffering. But mostly we're so reactive to the behavior, we're not empathetic. We're not in that moment of empathy. We're actually seeing and feeling what they're going through. So empathy is a moment of stopping and feeling connecting. But compassion is something more than empathy. Compassion is not simply stopping for a moment to feel what somebody else is feeling. Compassion has that particular quality that motivates us, that moves us to want to do something about it to want to alleviate the suffering in some way if we can. And this was expressed beautifully by this great Vietnamese poet and meditation master and peace activist, Thich Nhat Hanh, when he said, compassion is a verb. Compassion is that feeling that moves us to action. An interesting experiment. Exercise number three. Do you Remember number
1: one?
0: <laughs> number three. Just pay attention, if you can remember, <clears throat> the next time you come close to suffering. Whether it's in yourself, whether it's in somebody in the street, whether it's in somebody you know, just pay attention to those times when, next time, when we come close to a situation of suffering, and really, can we watch our own reactions? What do we do at that time, in that moment? And we might see a wide range of response. Do we pull back? You know, we don't want to deal with it. (coughs) Do we let it in? Are we actually moved to do something about it? Are we afraid of it? So to do this out of a sense of exploration, it's not its not for self-judgment. It's not to have some ideal. It's just to see. Because it's only through seeing that actually we can begin this process of transformation. But so often, we just you know, try to keep it at bay. <laughs> There's one story. That this is one of endless number of stories. But a friend of ours was in the hospital having surgery, and the doctors, they were trying to put in an IV, (coughs) and they couldn't, the doctor couldn't find the vein. And you know, you know, poking and poking and poking, and after a while you really start getting sick from from that. So she was, this friend was in a lot of distress, you know, and they they couldn't find the vein. And she was obviously looking and feeling very distressed. And the doctor said, Don't worry, it doesn't hurt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was like totally
0: absent from what was going on. And it was probably well intentioned. But it's often our habit. We, we don't want to let it in. So we need to look in in ourselves, in our own experience, how we are. If we develop the aspiration of bodhicitta, it means that we are practicing an active engagement with the world. It's this aspiration, this motivation, may I live, may my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all, and that really means engaging with the suffering of the world. It's responding to the various needs of beings which are limitless. This is a vast field. It's the field of suffering beings, in whatever way is appropriate and possible. There's no right course of action. For each one of us it will be different. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. If we're motivated, we each find our own way. Sometimes they may be very small things, just an act of kindness, an act of generosity. Sometimes they may be very dramatic. There are amazing examples of people moving into places of extreme danger, life-threatening danger, with the motive to be of help. And just before a month or so ago, I was on TV I saw a saw of documentary on the part of the life of Martin Luther King. And it was showing kind of his last time in Memphis, you know, where he went down to help with the strike of the garbage collectors. And it was Memphis at that time. And that's was terrible. It was a tremendous suffering. <coughs> and For many reasons, he did not want to do it, but then when he came close and met with people, he was moved to do it, and of course, as we all know, I mean, what is so amazing about him as as others as well, that in the face of all that hatred and violence, he was committed to keeping his heart open blood. And this is not theoretical. It's not sitting around in the meditation hall. It's out there really practicing this. And as we know, he was assassinated in Memphis. And so sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's extremely heroic, really. And sometimes it's completely different again. I mean, the Buddha spent lifetimes in his practice to awaken, to understand and alleviate not just situations of suffering, but the very causes, the root causes of suffering. What are the root causes of suffering in this world? It's the force of greed, it's the force of hatred, it's the force of anger, it's the force of fear in our own minds in people's minds. And so to free ourselves from these forces and to help others be free is also a move of great compassion. So there's no one way. Each one of us finds our own way. If we practice, if we plant the seed of Bodhicitta, May my practice, may my life, be for the benefit of all beings." Even if we plant the seed, (coughs) to have this aspiration, because this is a big, it's a big and beautiful and noble thing, and we may, we don't want to, we don't want to create an idealized picture of ourselves, we want to be exactly where we are, And so maybe it's just planting the seed of an aspiration to have the aspiration. But if we plant it, and if we water it, it starts to grow, and it takes root in our lives, and it transforms the way we live. And we start living this life of wisdom and compassion. And even when we're not, this great, beautiful <coughs> thing of bodhicitta. even when we're not acting from that place, it illuminates our actions and reminds us that there might be other choices. I'd like to close with a very simple teaching from the Dalai Lama, who. Cool often does express the deepest wisdom and compassion in the most simple way. He said, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that time, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace if you contribute to other people's happiness you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. This is really why we gather here. Sit for a few minutes. The merit of our practice together be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings. Reminder of exercise one. <laughs> <laughs> if sometime this evening you just take five or ten minutes and watch carefully that flow of changing experience, just so there's a real direct hit of it. It's very clear. Um, tomorrow morning, There'll be a time also, after after a little talk on how, in some very practical ways, to bring the practice back into the world, uh, there'll also be a time just for questions. Generally we don't like to have questions after a talk because it really disperses you know, the energy. It looks good just to sit with, sit metaphorically. You know, And then tomorrow, if there are questions, we'll have time for that. Have a good evening. Was it announced at the Hall in stay quiet. From the habits of greed and envy, from the habits of anger, of hatred, from all those tendencies that are very deeply conditioned in our own minds that create suffering. Create suffering for ourselves, create suffering for other people. And all the practices we do, the practice of generosity, the practice of concentration, the practice of mindfulness, they all serve this end goal of freedom. That's what's underneath. That's the motivation behind it all. So the question I'd like to talk about some tonight is, given the busyness of our lives and the speed of our lives, how can we stay on track How can we keep ourselves aligned with this purpose? Aligned with this possibility of experiencing freedom? A unique aspect of these teachings is that they begin and they end with wisdom. So it's not a question of belief, and it's not a question of Accepting dogma. It's not a question of ritual. Rather, the whole spiritual journey, our entire spiritual practice, comes from our own investigation of what is true. We begin to see that this wisdom that is at the beginning and the end of our practice. It's not something that we get and then have. It's not like we practice for a few days and we get a little piece of wisdom and then we hold it. Wisdom is much more alive. It's something that needs continual cultivation and nourishment in our lives. We need to grow it. So the question is, how in the busyness of our lives in the complexity Of them, how can we grow wisdom? Clear seeing comes from an investigating power of mind, of refining our ability to observe carefully. So, this investigation of what is true and Over these last few days, you may have heard us use the word dharma. Dharma is a Sanskrit word, and it's central to the understanding of what we're doing. It has a broad range of meanings, but in its most expansive meaning, the word dharma, beside being the name of a TV show, It means the truth, it means the way things are, it means natural law, it means reality. And so what we're practicing, we're practicing the Dharma, we're practicing seeing what is true in as clear and deep a fashion as possible. And it's wisdom, or this investigating power of mind, that's not a belief system, it's not just new concepts. It's direct observation. This is what illuminates, this is the light that illuminates the Dharma. There's a wonderful image, and I think it's out of the Japanese tradition someplace. There's an image that talks of how the light of a single candle can dispel the darkness of 10,000 years. I just find that very powerful. No matter how long we've lived in confusion and ignorance and suffering, the light of a single candle can dispel that confusion. So how do we do it? What's the the avenue? One of the most far-reaching aspects of the development of wisdom comes from an investigation into something that is so present and so obvious that we mostly overlook it. And that is the investigation of the truth of change, the truth of impermanence. If we could genuinely, deeply, see this. It's like the lighting of that candle. Now we all know that things are impermanent. We know that things change. We could go up to anybody on the street of any place. 116th Street. That's where Columbia is, for those of you who don't know. (laughs) And being a Columbia alumnus, I have fond memories. (laughs) Everybody knows that things change. So it's not that it's some great, mysterious, esoteric understanding. The problem is we know it intellectually. We know it up here, but we don't actually live from that place of understanding. Because if we really knew it deeply from a place of wisdom, we would not be attached to things. We would not be holding on, we would not be grasping. But we don't know it from that very deep place. And so the practice of wisdom is the investigation, not theoretically, but through a direct looking at our own experience. It's not believing anything. It's for us to take a look deeply to explore the truth of this. When we do see it deeply, this truth of change, something quite remarkable happens. Our heart and mind relax. We actually begin to let go a bit of the grasping and clinging and attachment that is the cause of so much suffering in our lives. We can see this so clearly in our relationship to our own bodies. If we are attached to them being a certain way or staying a certain way, what happens when either through accident or disease or simply getting older What happens as they go through the inevitable changes? The degree to which we're attached to our bodies being a certain way, to that degree, when they change, as they will inevitably, we suffer. It's a very different and difficult insight To see and to deeply understand that these changes are not a mistake when we get sick or some disease. It's not a mistake. When there's an accident and we injure ourselves, it's not a mistake. Getting older is not a mistake, it's what happens. This is the Dharma. This is the nature of having a body. It's what happens to everyone. But somehow we often don't hold it in that way because of deep attachments we have to things being a certain way and staying a certain way. Early on in my meditative career, I came up with a Goldstein Law of the Dharma, which reflected my experience, as is common to everyone, that no sooner did I get through one problem, then something else was coming up that I had to deal with. And so the Goldstein Law of practice is, if it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) And our life keeps going like that. If it's not one thing, it's something else. And so the key is not to somehow think, well, we're going to live our life in a certain way or we're going to meditate in a certain way and then we're going to get it and have it and fix it and that'll be it. It's not like that precisely because of this (coughs) great truth of change. Things do not stay the same, no matter how much we would like them to. When we see directly, experientially, when we're observing and paying attention to this truth of our own experience, It very powerfully deconditions the habit and tendency of grasping and clinging. Because we see we can't. You don't go down to a river and try to hold on to the water. Because we see so clearly it's flowing. Our life experience is exactly the same way. Seeing this is really the doorway to freedom. Just as a simple example of applying this in life situations, in meditative practice, very early on when I first went to India to practice, I had all the usual beginning difficulties and for a long time a lot of frustration with my mind. It would not concentrate. I'd get very depressed, very discouraged. And there'd be long periods of being in these mind states. And then I just started investigating, investigating the Dharma, the truth of it. And I remember back then, I would extrapolate over time and I would think to myself, in six months, I'm not going to even remember that I was depressed now. Not only six months, five months, four Mm -hmm. months, the next week, next day, I needed to do that to remind myself of the changing nature of those difficult feelings, because our tendency is, when we're in the midst of them, to live and to relate to them as if they're going to last forever. And to the degree that we do that, to that degree we suffer. It's all part of a great passing show. What's so amazing about the seductive power of this world is that when we look back at our experience, when we look back on all the experiences we've had in the past, we see their essential, ephemeral, dreamlike nature. Just think of your worst experience in these last few days, or the last year of law school or whenever. You know, just so really hard. Where is it now? Think of your best experience. You know, that 30 seconds when your mind was really concentrated, and still. (laughs) Where is that now? What's so amazing is that when we look back at our own experience, we can see this. It's so obvious, this dreamlike, ephemeral nature. And yet when we look ahead, we are continually dazzled by the possibilities awaiting us, as if some new possibility of experience is somehow going to fulfill us and make us happy and bring us to completion. Have you fantasized at all about first thing you're going to do when you leave the retreat, you know maybe meeting with your partner or having a cappuccino or sleeping in your own bed. You know our mind leans forward, anticipates the next hit of experience, the next event in our lives. The next weekend, the next relationship, the next job, the next vacation, the next project. Here, in particular, the next meal. You
1: know. <laughs> Even the next breath.
0: You know, when we look to see how we're relating in our lives to this flow of changing experience. It's as if fulfillment or happiness or completion is always just just the next thing that's going to happen, that's going to arise. But if we pay attention, if we bring some wisdom to our lives, to what's happening, we see that everything we're looking forward to in this way Anticipating in this way is also going to become past and dreamlike. It's not going to fulfill us. It. Because nothing up till this date has. So why should this next one suddenly have that capability? It doesn't and it won't. Not only that, the flow of change. And this is a very subjective feeling, but I think it's one that's in common. The older we get, things seem to to go by faster and faster and faster. I read someplace it was this. I think it was some woman on a game show or something. <laughs> who was kind of reported her her great insights was reported in the newspapers. She said that when she turned fifty five breakfast started happening every 15 minutes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's like that. (laughs) And the older you get.
0: (laughs) (coughs) There's a wonderful paradox of our spiritual lives. And that is that as objects of desire, all of these changing elements of our experience, whether it's sights or sounds or bodily sensations or tastes or whatever it is, things outside, things inside, as objects of desire, they ultimately leave us unfulfilled. Why? Because they keep changing and disappearing. But as objects of mindfulness, as object of awareness, these very same experiences become the vehicle of awakening. So this is a very important point. It's not a question of pulling away from experience. That's not the message. The message is to become aware enough of what's happening to be fully enough in the moment, in the experience, (coughs) that we're not holding on. And there's often a confusion, especially in people's understanding of Buddhist ideas, because often people, either through reading or through some superficial understanding, I think that what's being taught is detachment. Just detachment from experience, and detachment from sense pleasures, and detachment from this, and detachment from that. It's really the wrong word. Because detachment implies a withdrawal. It's not detachment. It's non-attachment. So it's not a pulling back. It's not a pulling away. We are fully in experience without adding the extra dimension of clinging. Because the clinging does not enhance our experience of the moment in any way, and it only creates suffering. But we have to see this. It's not a question of believing it or not believing it. We need to see for ourselves. We need to look and investigate it. So this liberating insight, and it is a very freeing insight, it comes in several levels of several ways in our lives. On the first level, or last level, it comes from seeing the momentary impermanence of experience. And this, this arises when our mindfulness and concentration really are developed and strong. We're watching the breath or sensations in the body or sounds, and we are seeing phenomena arise and pass away thousands of times a minute. Our perception can get so refined, it's like looking through a high-power microscope. And so the breath is not just one thing. The breath itself is a flow of many, many countless sensations, and our mind can get reclined enough so that we are actually perceiving this momentary flow of phenomena. That there's nothing solid there with a the sound. We hear the sound of the bell, it's not one thing, it's not the bell rang. The sound is made up of innumerable modulations and changes. And It's a flow, it's a current. To see this is very freeing. As an example, um, I'm sure you could imagine this. Would you get totally caught up in the drama of a movie if you could see that what was really happening was a that was separate frames of film? Probably not. We wouldn't get so totally caught or involved because we would see an underlying reality. It's not that the meditation means, or this way of seeing means that we don't enjoy and we don't experience the movies and the dramas of our lives, because we do. However, if we see the underlying reality of the momentary change rather than being so completely ensnared by the storyline, then we live our lives and we're in the dramas with a lot greater ease, a lot less reactivity, a lot less suffering, a lot less contraction is more sense of play. So this is the insight that comes really from a very refined perception. But wisdom also comes from a careful observation of what we already know. It's not limited to kind of refined meditative states. And this really becomes a very profound daily life practice. It's not limited to retreat. It's not even limited to sitting meditation. When we look carefully at our ordinary experience in our ordinary daily life, But when we're paying attention, rather than lost, we see that each moment's experience is continually disappearing, and new ones arising, and disappearing, and arising. It's like water falling over a waterfall. There is nothing that stays. I had one striking example of this, although this example is so ordinary that it can happen any time, any place, it's completely ordinary. But this one particular time, it just jumped out at me. I was at our center in Barry and I was just taking a walk to a pond, which was about 20 minute, 15 minute walk away. And I was relatively mindful and I was just watching. And when I got to the pond, I had this very strong, striking reflection that my experience of when I started the walk was completely gone, completely. And not only when I started the walk, halfway, experience of halfway in the walk, three quarters of the walk, the step before was completely gone. All life is like that. It's just this flow, continual flow of changing experience. And so what I would like to suggest is when you get up after the talk this evening, if you can remember, between we now and then,
1: <laughs> which
0: is its own challenge, just see if it's possible to take the first ten minutes and pay careful attention to your changing experience. Just really watch the feelings, the sensations of the body as you stand up and you move and you put your shoes on and you get your coat. Just all with the sensations that keep changing in the movement and the different sights that pass by and the different sounds and the thoughts you might have and the feelings. Just be watchful for what is really happening. The truth of this is so ordinary that we really have stopped paying attention to it. Again, this is not esoteric knowledge. This is what is happening. and. I would like to repeat again, it's not a question of belief or disbelief. It's a question of looking for ourselves, just to pay that careful attention to what is happening in our experience, so we see for ourselves the truth of this continually changing nature. (coughs) Because when we do, we then have the opportunity to practice the mind that keeps letting go, that doesn't hold on, that doesn't grasp, but is just with the flow of the changes. There's one very famous Thai meditation master who died some years ago. Very, he was, he was a teacher in the Thai forest tradition. His name was Ajahn Chah, a very earthy, wise being, and his teachings were very plain and very to the point. One of of the things he said was, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. It's so simple in a way. Given the truth of impermanence, given the truth of change which we can explore and investigate for ourselves, it's obvious that... If we can let go of what in its nature is changing, we are at ease. We're not struggling. Sometimes careful observations of very obvious truths of impermanence can really shake us out of our complacency and begin to break open the deep habit patterns we have, the conditioning. So there are some very simple and powerful reflections. The first of them is so straightforward, and yet we rarely think about it. And that is that the end of birth is death. Our life is only getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And of course, as one gets older, this becomes more and more obvious. But at any age, it's obvious. The end of birth is death. But in our culture, often our awareness of death seems consigned to other people's death. It's always other people that seem to be dying. And we don't...
1: Kind of make the connection.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No. They're dying, they're dying, they're dying. But do we think (laughs) deeply? Do we really take in the fact that we will die and those close to us will die. Is that really seen and understood deeply? In our culture, in our society, this is not a popular notion. You know, people think of it as being morbid. Oh, you think of death. Why would you want to do that? You know, we dress up corpses and they never looked so good. (laughs) <laughs> because just as a society, we want to keep anything that's not pleasant away from us. You know? And so there's this huge denial of what's true. And one of the great, great things about living and practicing in India for all those years everything is totally out there. It's life and death and birth and suffering and joy. It's all on the streets. And it's not covered and it's not camouflaged. And there it is. And it's a tremendous lesson in seeing that death is a completely natural part of life. So we need to really see this because it's of profound importance. To how we live, to the choices we make, to what we value. First as an exercise, this is the second exercise. Just imagine yourselves on your deathbed, and we're giving a little bit here because. For myself, anyway, I always do imagine myself dying in bed,
1: <laughs> <laughs> in a nice, comfortable bed, <laughs> to die in. So we'll give
0: ourselves that, because there's no knowing. But just what it would be like, you know, to, to actually do a little meditative visualization. You know, we're dying. Our body. Is in whatever process it is, the death process, what is that moment like for us? Does it reveal where we're most holding on? What are our attachments? What are our fears? Does it point us from that perspective to what's of most value in our life? If we could imagine ourselves on our deathbed What would we have most wanted to have accomplished in our lives? What really is of most importance from the perspective of dying? The key, of course, is to ask this question now and not wait until then, because then it's too late. So we need to let this truth in. Can we let it in? You know, does it frighten us? Does it inspire us? I want to read just a couple of things about Thoreau, who, as I mentioned before, is a great favorite, and he was just quite extraordinary, he was a very wise being. He died quite young. He died in his 40s. I think it was of tuberculosis. And this was written by a friend of his you know, who was visiting him at the time of his death. And it points to another possibility for relating to death. The, the treatment <coughs> of death. He said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. I never before saw such a manifestation of the power of spirit over matter. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body, a perfect description of mindfulness. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die, and I sat back down. So of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. (laughs) And it just goes on on. Clearly, a mind and a heart at peace with the truth of this so we can reflect on this and see for ourselves come to that place that's one reflection on the obvious truth of change another one is that the end of all accumulation is dispersion Now, how much of our lives do we spend accumulating things, whether it's material things or projects or people or whatever, that we collect? (laughs) You know, recently I've come to realize that one of the great satisfying moments in American culture is cleaning out a closet, (laughs) because there is so much junk that we accumulate. And yet the end of all accumulation, one way or another, is dispersal. There's nothing that really lasts either because it's broken, or we lose it, or we lose interest. Some years ago, I saw this wonderful video documentary on the life of Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, who, as you might know, was a South African, really kind of a renaissance man. He was a writer, a philosopher, a naturalist, many, many talents. He worked for a while in London with the BBC. And he had this lifelong interest in the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert. So when he was working with the BBC, he went down there to South Africa to do a documentary on the Bushmen. And so in this documentary on his life was a clip from that old film of the BBC. And it showed Sir Lawrence with his crew out in the Kalahari Desert meeting with this small group of bushmen. And as part of the interview, he asked the, the headman, how long would it take you to prepare for a journey into the desert? And the headman said about one minute.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then he just walked off into the desert. <laughs> kind of a few of survival. And the next clip in the film
0: is showing Sir Lawrence and his crew loading their land with all the Western survival paraphernalia. And it's just such a common thing. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that we are all going to live like the Bushmen of the Kalahari. It's not likely. However, it does point to something. How much of our time and energy is spent in useless accumulation? And to what degree can we fruitfully and happily simplify our lives? Knowing that it's all changing, that everything we accumulate falls away in one way or another anyway. So it's bringing some mindfulness, some attention, to these very (coughs) obvious parts of our lives. This is not a great mystery, it's just a question of paying attention. The end of birth is death, the end of accumulation is separation is dispersion. The end of meeting is separation. The end of all our relationships in one way or another ends in separation, either because we part ways or someone dies. Something happens. This is part of the truth of change. But how often do we get so entangled and enmeshed in our relationships that the inevitable parting becomes a source then of overwhelming sorrow? Pretty often. The Buddha said that more more tears have been shed in the sorrow and suffering of separation over the countless lifetimes, than all the water in all the great oceans. I mean, that's how deep rooted is our entanglement, is our subsequent sorrow and suffering. Now, for most of us, there will be sorrow and sadness, in times of separation to people we're close to. But the more we reflect on the truth, the naturalness of change, of separation, we don't drown in those waters. We see it as a natural part of life, and through this insight, we begin to make some very important distinctions now which are very freeing. We begin to see the difference clearly in ourselves, in our own hearts. The difference between love and attachment. They're two very different feelings and yet for most of us they've gotten totally mixed up. We begin to see the difference between the experience of loss and the experience of grief. But again, for most of us, these have gotten totally mixed up. The investigation of the Dharma, the wisdom, the light that we can shine on our own experience reveals all this. And it begins to change the way we live and relate. What grows out of this ground of wisdom through the deep seeing of impermanence and change on all of these many levels and arenas of our lives, what grows out of this wisdom is the very rare flower of Bodhicitta, which I talked about the first night. That aspiration, that motivation that we can practice and live, live our lives for the benefit of all beings. The that becomes the seed of the motivation that directs us in our lives. And the manifestation of this motivation that our lives be for the benefit of all, the manifestation of this is compassion, and compassionate action. So what is compassion? And when we look and explore it in ourselves, we see that it's the very deep feeling that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. But where does it come from? Where does compassion come from? It comes from our willingness to come close to suffering. If we're keeping it away, if we're pushing it away, we don't allow ourselves to feel it, it closes that wellspring of compassion. This is a very difficult practice. We may want to be compassionate, And we may even feel that we often are. But it's really not very easy to do. It's just as you've seen, I think, in these last few days, that we don't like to be very much with our own pain. We don't like to be with the pain in our body, and we don't like to be with the pain in our mind just as we don't like to be with our own pain, we don't very much like to be with the pain of others. There's a very strong tendency of mind that keeps us defended against, or indifferent to, or apathetic in the face of suffering. I'd like to read a poem. Actually, it's it's an edited version of a poem, which is probably a horrible thing to do. I'm sure there's some karmic consequence for this. <laughs> it's by a wonderful poet, Mary Oliver, and the name of the poem is Beyond the Snow Belt. I think it was actually written in Connecticut or in New England someplace. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarred and smiling, citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away, a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from from a distant land. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So the great question, the difficult question, is how can we begin to practice loving those two counties north, or three countries south, or all those people across the ocean. We need to start with ourselves and the people closest to us. This is the place where we can begin to practice opening to the pain and suffering that's there. We see in meditation practice and in our lives, we have endless opportunities. How are we with the physical pain that happens in our body, whether it's happening because of your sitting in meditation posture or because of something that's happening in your body, in your life? How are we with that pain? Are we contracted? Are we closed off? Are we afraid? Can we open? Can we feel it? Can we with it? This is a practice. How are we with emotional distress? With fear or anger? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please
1: visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.